This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where in this episode, we are looking at the Baywatch spin-off series, Baywatch Nights. Specifically, the episode named The Servant from Series 2. In terms of the format of the episode, we shall start with a little background information, and then I have an exclusive for all of you, because I'm pretty damn sure I'm the only person to ever do a historical accuracy section on this episode. Shocking, I know! And then after that, I shall review the film, saying what I like and dislike about it, and then rating it out of ten. Right. It is a dark and cold night as you head back to the museum where you work. As you step through the door, you realise that the security guard who is supposed to be there is missing. Your chauffeur pulls out a gun and heads further into the museum. You wait behind with bated breath and then you hear a struggling. As you run towards the sound... Little do you know that you are about to come face to face with the living dead as you confront the servant. Okay, so in this section, I'm just going to talk a little bit about the background information on this episode and a little bit on Baywatch Nights as well. So to begin with, Baywatch Nights was a series that ran from 1995 until 1997 for two seasons. And this particular episode was season two, episode 17. Unlike Baywatch, which was kind of more of a sort of a drama show, I suppose, this series was science fiction and was largely based on things like the X-Files. Because 
Why on earth would you not make a science fiction show out of Baywatch? What a bizarre concept. Seriously. Oh, I love the 90s. In terms of the cast, Donna Dorico plays Donna Marco, who's the expert at the museum. I don't think they ever really specify exactly what her job is there. Eric Avari plays Dr. Kazan, and yes, that is the same Eric Avari from The Mummy 1999 with Brendan Fraser. Very excited about that fact. Angie Harmon plays Ryan McBride, and David Hasselhoff plays Mitch Buchanan. Because let's face it, is it really Baywatch if it doesn't have David Hasselhoff in it? Okay, so we've arrived at the historical accuracy section. Let us do what no one has done before us and assess the historical accuracy of this very specific episode of Baywatch Nights. First things first, like, I just find it amazing how every single museum in every single film just seems to have the coffin of Tutankhamun. And this one is no exception. In the museum at the beginning, one of the very first artefacts you see is the coffin of Tutankhamun. And then later on, you see it again in the shop of Dr. Kazan. It's almost like they were reusing props or something. In general, most of the artefacts in this episode are, well, they look like poor replicas of real Egyptian artefacts. So, for instance, um, in one of the display cases, you can see Isis with a baby Horus, but it's quite clearly just made of plastic. And then in the home of Dr. Kazan, they have what looks like it might be a bit of a stealer, but it has the rays of the sun coming down on the pharaoh Akhenaten. And that's actually based on a real example. So I've covered it a little bit in other episodes, but Akhenaten, the probable father of Tutankhamun, was a very controversial pharaoh. Uh, he basically tried to get rid of all of the gods in Egypt and make everyone worship the Aten, which was the disc of the sun. And in the symbolism, that's what you kind of see. You see the Aten above, with the rays coming down on top of the royal family. And each of the rays of the sun have like a little hand at the end of them. After Akhenaten, there were a couple of rulers. You had Smenkepera immediately after. And then it's very likely that you had Nefertiti, who's almost certainly a name you've heard of before. So Nefertiti, she was the wife of Akhenaten. But it does seem very likely she did become the pharaoh as well, which is really cool, actually. Although she is quite enigmatic. And then after her, you had Tutankhamun. And Tutankhamun was the one who sort of started trying to bring back the Egyptian religion as it had been. Unfortunately, because he was so hated, the Egyptians tried to erase any mention of Akhenaten from inscriptions and things like that. But because Tutankhamun was his likely son... They also erased most of his inscriptions as well. Basically, they didn't just want to get rid of Akhenaten, they wanted to get rid of his entire line. Anyway, back to the episode. I will say, this museum really confuses me. Because half the time it looks like it's a storage room, and then half the time it looks like it's a display room. And there's no real cutoff point, they're just all in the same room together, so you get loads of boxes that are clearly holding, like, ancient artefacts. And then there's just a random display case in the middle of it with items in it. I mean, in fairness, museums do tend to have a big problem when it comes to storage. 
So basically, when you're looking in the display cases in the museum, you're only seeing a small fraction of the actual items in the museum. Most of them are normally in storage rooms. Even in smaller museums, there's usually at least thousands of items that aren't on display. And interestingly, in Egypt itself, there are actually examples of artifacts being reburied in the desert because, well, let's face it, they survived there for thousands of years. Why would they not continue to survive there? It's quite clever, really, if you think about it. However, one thing I have never seen with any museum <laughs> is them using the actual display rooms to store the boxes. When our two investigators, Mr. Mitch Buchanan, David Hasselhoff, and Ryan McBride turn up at the museum to do their investigation, Ryan comes up with a theory that the items in the museum are being stolen and replaced with replicas. She then goes on to be a bit confused by this because the thieves wouldn't be able to sell the items back to museums. Yeah, she's right. There's absolutely no way a museum would take any item without documentation proving their legality. I've gone over that in quite a few episodes. But she does seem to forget you do also get the black market, and, and sadly, that's still thriving when it comes to antiquities today. And one thing people don't realise about the black market is a lot of the time, the items being sold are actually being sold to fund things like terrorism. So, for instance, let's say the Taliban need to raise funds, they can sell items on the black market to raise that money. Right. <laughs> I love this next part because Ryan then sees a load of dust on the ground and she goes, I've seen this before. I've seen this in the British Museum. This is dust from a tomb. I mean, wow, what a detective. Like, I wouldn't be able to discern a random scattering of dust on the ground. We then skip forward a little bit to when Ryan is doing the carbon dating of the dust. And I love this scene. To begin with, I I'm going to say random dust on the, the ground of a museum is going to be highly contaminated. Let's face it. And okay, fair enough. There are ways they can decontaminate things. One of the first steps in carbon dating is actually to look at the sample through a microscope so that you can pick out the bits that aren't supposed to be there. Some of the contaminated parts, for instance. And then after that, the sample is cleaned using chemicals to remove any further contamination. So I, I will admit I'm not an expert when it comes to carbon dating. I've never personally carbon dated anything, but I still feel you're going to have a hard time carbon dating this random bit of dust because there would be a lot of contamination. But on the upside, if the dust is coming from a mummy, it can be carbon dated because generally for something to be carbon dated, it has to have once been alive. However, the way she's actually carbon dating it is hysterical because she's basically just holding two test tubes with some weird coloured liquid above a Bunsen burner. And she just sort of squints at them and goes, these samples are over 3,000 years old. They date to the 18th dynasty. That's not how carbon dating works. For a start, okay, there is a part where you get liquid in a test tube. The way it's shown isn't accurate, but you do have test tubes in this process. However, generally the liquid at this point would be CO2, and it would be clear, it wouldn't be coloured. If it's coloured, it would almost certainly be contaminated. Also, this phase is only partway through the process of carbon dating. 
So the CO2 then has to be mixed with hydrogen and a small amount of iron powder. When this is heated up, what you get is graphite. There are then several more phases, but ultimately you're not just squinting at a test tube to find out the age of something. The results will be displayed on a like a computer screen. I apologise to anyone who does work in carbon dating because I'm sure you could probably give a far better explanation of that than I just did. But basically put, the way the carbon dating is shown in this episode is completely and utterly incorrect. Shortly after this scene, Ryan claims that when the Egyptians died, they wanted to take a lot of their possessions with them to the afterlife, as well as a lot of sort of like gold and stuff like that. Diamond, who's one of the other detectives, then claims that because of this, tombs became a very tempting target for tomb robbers. I mean, yeah, that's pretty much correct. There was a real issue with tomb robbery in ancient Egypt, and even today there's a big issue with it. Ryan then claims that because of this, the Egyptians made their tombs quite sort of maze-like and had a lot of like false entrances and things like that. Yeah, this is kind of correct, I guess. Um, so to begin with, we're talking about the 18th dynasty here. There seems to be a lot of talk about Hatshepsut, so I'm going to talk about the Valley of the Kings. So this location was deliberately hidden in quite a remote part of the desert, and that was to protect the tombs there. Also, the entrances to the tombs were typically hidden, and you did have things like the tunnels leading into the tomb being filled with rubble to make them quite hard to access as well. Also, there was a room called the Well Chamber in the tombs in the Valley of the Kings. No one entirely knows what their purpose was. It may have been to protect the tomb from tomb robbers. It may have also been to divert water flows that may have damaged the tomb as well. But ultimately, the entrance to the well chamber was often plastered over to make it look like a dead end. Now unfortunately all of this effort was often for naught because it was often the actual builders of the tomb who lived in a nearby village named Deir al-Medina who were the the robbers of the tombs and very often they were robbing these tombs during times of strife essentially so for instance, at the end of the 20th dynasty, you see, it sounds like quite a boring subject, but I personally find it fascinating, you see an exponential rise in grain prices. The cost of grain increased 12-fold, and it is around this time that you start to see a lot of tomb robbery. So, although obviously tomb robbery isn't good, and very often these tomb robbers are painted in quite a poor light, I think it is important to realise a lot of the time they were desperate. They were people who were literally starving to death. Okay, let's move forward a little bit. Right, so they figured out that the dust in the tomb comes from the 18th dynasty. And then they just start randomly talking about Queen Hatshepsut, who they keep calling Queen Hatshepsut for some reason. But there's quite a few pharaohs in the 18th dynasty, so how did they know that the case is going to revolve around Queen Hatshepsut? It, it doesn't make any sense. Also... They don't seem to realise that Hatshepsut was a pharaoh in her own right. They keep referring to her as sort of just a, a queen to another pharaoh. But she was actually a very powerful pharaoh. One cool thing in the episode, though, is they claim that Hatshepsut died in January and wasn't buried until May. I mean, first things first, there is no evidence that it took months to bury her. That's, that's made up for this episode, I feel. However... There is some evidence that she did die in January. 
According to Estela at Armand, she died in the 22nd year of her reign during the second parallel on day 10. The parallel basically is one of the seasons of the Egyptian calendar and it means the emergence. It was basically a time where the crops had begun to grow. So it came before the harvest, which in Egyptian was called the Shemu. And although there is some variation as the years go on, typically the parrots took place between mid-November and mid-March. And the date given here would probably relate to about the 16th of January. So I will give this episode that. They've clearly done a little bit of research. Another area where it does feel like a little bit of research may have gone into it is when they go to the office of Dr. Kazan and he starts talking about an ancient map which shows gold mines in the eastern desert. He's actually right. That is a real map. It's actually one of the earliest maps in known history. And what's more, he even claims it, it's currently in the Turin Museum, which is accurate. It is. Although he then does go on to say that this is related to King Solomon's mines, which, I mean, no, that's, that's nonsense. Okay, I mean, as is usual, the historical accuracy here is not great. Most of the props look like quite cheap imitations. They have absolutely no idea how carbon dating works. And the museum is a complete mess. However, there is some evidence that a little bit of research was done. So, for instance, they do talk about Hatshepsut dying in January, which is probably correct. Although they do seem to think she's simply a queen and not a pharaoh. And also, they do talk about a gold map in the Turin Museum, which originally led to gold mines in the eastern desert. This is a real map. Right, we have now arrived at the review section of this episode. So here, I'm just going to talk about what I liked in the episode, what I disliked, and then rate it out of 10. I will say, just off the bat, I've actually never seen an episode of Baywatch before. I've never watched that film that Dwayne Johnson did, and I've never watched an episode of this spin-off series until this very episode. So I am coming into this completely blind. But... I did get the feeling that this is a really weird addition to sort of, I suppose, like the Baywatch universe because it's so dark and edgy and who thought about doing a science fiction series? I, it's such a random and weird idea. But I will admit, I like random and weird. I can appreciate it for that, actually. The series also just generally has that 90s vibe, which I guess is because I grew up in the 90s, but I like that. Especially when it came to the intro, it kind of almost reminded me of Goosebumps. It was quite goofy. And I'm aware that's not for everyone, but I like that. I will also say that, although the mummy does not look realistic at all, the guy they had playing him was massive. I don't know whether it was just camera angles, but he genuinely looked about seven foot tall, which was pretty awesome, actually. Although the fight scenes with him were hysterical, like, there's one where he's fighting David Hasselhoff in the museum. And David Hasselhoff just keeps jumping off of boxes and the mummy just kept throwing him into the other direction. Ah, I was laughing a lot at that. It just looked so fake, basically. But it was also just so over the top. It kind of reminded me a bit of a badly executed wrestling match. I will just say in general as well, I think it may be because I'm coming into this blind, but... I had so many questions while I was watching this. Like, for instance, why is David Hasselhoff now suddenly a cop? 
when did that happen? Like, isn't he supposed to be a lifeguard or something? Who was looking at a lifeguard and then went, you know what, you'd work well in the NYPD? I will say, though, on an actual positive note, I did get a kick out of seeing Eric Avari in this film. For those who don't know who this is, he's Evie's boss in The Mummy 1999. So he's a curator of Cairo Museum, I believe he is. And then it turns out he's a member of the Magi, who's sworn to protect the world from the evil that is Imhotep. He's just one of those faces that pops up in things, and he always it always makes me smile when he does turn up. I will say, though, him at the end of this episode, when he's he's supposed to be dressed as like a pharaoh or some like important Egyptian, but the costume he's got on is so clearly just a really cheap one that's been bought from a fancy dress store. But what makes this even better is the way that the entire episode, it's played so straight and serious, and it just makes everything seem more funny. Like Eric Avani dressed in a cheap Halloween costume, presumably of what's supposed to be a pharaoh, acting completely seriously as if this is the most important thing that's ever happened. How can that not make you laugh? I will say though, there are one or two things that I just didn't really like in this episode. The first is quite a common one in 90s series to be fair, but I don't like the fact that they felt the need to have music playing at every second. And it isn't even good music, it's very generic, slightly wavery stock music basically. I'm really glad we've got past that phase because it kind of started in the 90s and went on to sort of like the early 2000s. And to be honest with you, it was just so unnecessary. The music in those scenes didn't add anything whatsoever. It didn't add any emotion, it didn't add any tension to the scenes. It was just annoying, at least in my opinion anyway. The other thing I didn't really like was the way the camera was used, because it tended to make everything look quite constricted. Like, it made every single scene seem quite small, it made everything feel quite cramped. And I think that was done deliberately to make it just seem a bit more kind of, I guess, like edgy and dark. But I'm not personally a fan of that. If you are, that's fine. It's just not for me. In terms of the reviews for this episode, as I'm sure will shock you, they're pretty few and far between. It does have a Rotten Tomatoes page, but it's got absolutely no reviews on it at all. But on IMDb, it has a 4.9 out of 10. In terms of the consensus... Again, amazingly, there isn't really one. For myself, I would probably give this a 5 out of 10, but it's a good 5 out of 10. I'm not going to go out of my way to watch this again, but I'm really happy that someone made this because it's just such a ridiculous and stupid idea that I kind of love it for that. So, although I wouldn't recommend this one as one to watch, I am glad that it was made. Thank you very much for listening, and if you've enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing, liking, leaving a comment, and join me on Thursday, where I shall be looking at Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and then join me again on Monday, where we shall be looking at the first episode of the Marvel Disney Plus series, Moon Knight. I hope you all have a fantastic week, and see you then.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.